This is Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello. So nice to have you guys join us on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm really grateful. On today's show, I'll be speaking with Dr. Heidi Olander about vagina-related issues. Super important. Considering the fact that we'll be talking about vaginas in the interview today, one would think that at this point, I should be talking about vaginas. You're right. Perhaps I should be. You would think, in vagina land, a vagina monologue. But with the recent current events, I'm wondering if we should talk about the Georgia spa shootings. It's been on my mind with the multiple issues that it brings up to think about. It's another tragic and horrible event that has occurred in our society as we are seeing an increased number in the number of hate crimes towards Asians. And with the most recent shootings, while we think about racism and hatred that exists, I can't help but think it also brings up mental illness, misogyny in sex workers, and gun violence. In Georgia, eight victims were killed, six of whom were Asian, when 21-year-old Robert Long went on a rampage at three spas and he told the police that he had a sexual addiction and had carried out the shootings at the massage parlors to eliminate his temptation. He had frequented massage parlors in the past and had carried out the attacks as a way to eliminate temptation. A 30-year-old Guatemalan male was also shot when walking past a parlor to go to the store next door, and he was wounded in the forehead, throat, lungs, and stomach, and he's currently fighting for his life. Can you imagine recovering from wounds like these? What will living be like for him? And there are eight people dead, gone from this world, because another took away their lives. As a doctor and person working in the medical field, I think sometimes it offers a unique perspective. We as medical professionals cannot deny care to anyone who walks into the hospital or office, whether or not you like them or not. In the hospital, your patient could be a killer. The victim and the perpetrator could enter the ER at the same time. And even if you don't want to treat someone, you treat that person. You could be in surgery trying to save a shooter's or a rapist's or a killer's or a child abuser's life. Because at that moment, they are a patient who came into the hospital. You could be coding them because they've stopped breathing or their heart has stopped beating, and you resuscitate whomever to bring them back to life. Your patient could be handcuffed to the bed, transferred from the state prison, and have tattoos all over his body with multiple teardrops tattooed on the side of his face, which signifies that the wearer has committed murder. They are our patients. When I was a resident, I had been working at the VA hospital, and I had a patient whom I had known that had fought in the Korean War, and I had thanked him for fighting in the war as I still have family in Korea and I was born there. And his response to me was that he should have killed me like the rest of them when he was in Korea. He had dementia, but did it make me feel badly? Yes, it did. Even though I knew he had dementia, it still hurt as I tried to rationalize the situation. I've had plenty of patients who have yelled at me, screamed expletives, undermined me because I am a female or perhaps because I look different. And by now, you may have gotten the picture that I like to curse. And you can't curse back in those situations as you risk losing your job. For a doctor, it's very rare that we can fire a patient. It's super difficult to fire a patient. 
it's more likely that a patient fires you, and you can only hope in those situations that the patient fires you sooner than later. Hearing about this 21-year-old shooter, I can't help but wonder if there was severe mental illness involved and what his life was like to do something so horrible. Perhaps he really does have a self-proclaimed addiction to sex, but the rationalization that he provides to the police to eliminate the temptation to his sex addiction, in my opinion, sounds so irrational, delusional, and so limited in thinking. Sometimes, when people say they have an addiction to something, it's almost like the projection of all the things wrong in their lives into this one thing. Psychological experts remain skeptical of sex addiction as a legitimate psychological diagnosis, and it is not a part of the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5, which is the Manual for Assessment and Diagnoses for the Official List of Mental Disorders. However, it is known that people who have higher adverse childhood experiences have a higher risk of doing drugs or risky behaviors in their future. If you think about it, why would hurting or killing other people make his symptoms better? Let's be really clear. I don't ever side with killers. But if you really think about it, don't you wonder what kind of support this 21-year-old has had or not? What happened to him in his life to lead to this tragic decision? What kind of help he's gotten mentally or not in his past? And being a doctor, although we talk about getting help for mental health, the truth is, in our society, it's really difficult to get help for mental health issues. According to the National Council for Behavioral Health in 2018, Mental health services in the U.S. are insufficient despite more than half of Americans, 56%, seeking help. And then there is the other question that remains. Why are so many Americans having mental health issues and why is there a mental health crisis in America? And may I ask you another question? What were you like as a 21-year-old? I was smart and dumb. I didn't start working my shit out until my mid-30s. I was confused. At around that time, I stopped talking to my father. But I think I had more people in my life to walk me down from the ledge. And then there is another question that remains. Why was this man allowed to purchase a gun? Why is anyone allowed to purchase a gun? Why did we as a society give this lost person a gun? Some people say that they can use a gun responsibly and they can control themselves, but haven't we seen enough people that have not been able to control themselves? Why was it not enough with the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting right before Christmas in 2012, when 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed 26 people, including 20 little children from 6 to 7 years old? When is it enough? Morally, spiritually, ethically, righteously, honestly, none of us have the right to take away someone else's life. And if you're at the point in your life like I am, where you wonder if there's more to life than what you just see, it's literally bad karma to kill. What is karma? It's a sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence, viewed as deciding their fate in future existences. This means that the shit you do now may affect the shit that you live later. So, if you don't want to live in shit, stop creating the shit. You create the energy of your life, or lives, if you believe that. Why did Robert Long make one of the worst decisions any human being could make? Why did eight more people have to die and have their lives taken away on that fateful day? Maybe as most of us have done during the pandemic, we have to wonder about what can contribute to our greater good, like helping COVID-19 go away and preventing more people from getting sick. And maybe it's the same with guns. Do we choose guns or do we choose the lives of our human brothers and sisters, the lives of our parents, our grandparents, our friends, our children, and their children. 
According to Kim Belware and Paulina Villegas in the Washington Post on March 22, 2021, they write, Critics have also noted that violence against Asian women has a long history in the U.S. of being both racial and sexual, even more so in the reference to Asian immigrant women in low-wage personal service jobs like massage spas and nail salons. Although not all massage parlor workers provide sexual services, some do. In The Guardian, Marie Solis on March 18, 2021, in her article, A Specific Kind of Racism, Atlanta Shootings Fuel Fears Over Anti-Sex Work Ideology, states that the majority of the anti-Asian violence cases have been against women. And she writes that some argue that it is equally absurd to exclude discussion of anti-sex work sentiment from the conversation about these most recent attacks on the Asian community, as she further states that advocates say this reveals their way racism, sexism, and anti-sex work sentiment work together to produce anti-Asian violence. No matter what they say, his crime was ultimately won against sex workers. In 2017, Yang Song, a massage parlor worker in Flushing, Queens, fell four stories to her death during a New York police sting. Two months prior to her death, she had been arrested and charged with prostitution during another police raid. In New York City, her death helped fuel a sex work decriminalization movement, helping for sex work to be treated like other kinds of work and for sex workers to receive equal protection under labor laws. Sex workers exist, even if you want to pretend it doesn't. And if sex workers are afraid of being arrested or fined, then they may be afraid to go to authorities when they are victims of a crime. I think one of the major ironies, if this was a hate crime against Asian Americans, is that in the video surveillance, Robert Long was seen getting into his black Hyundai Tucson. For those of you that may not know, a Hyundai is a Korean car. As racist violence against Asian Americans is rising, and with the Black Lives Matter social movement, I can't help but think that hatred stems from a scarcity mindset. It's based on fear, lack of understanding and growth, limitations, and anxiety. Let's be honest. Sometimes we feel a certain way. But I wonder if hatred occurs when perhaps we choose not to grow, to see the situation, and learn from the situation. It's like you choose to be stuck, and shit festers. But if we choose to talk about stuff, how are any of our doubts and fears, anxiety, hopes and dreams, yearning for love, different from anyone else's? And as Martin Luther King Jr. said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And maybe it starts with all of us, by not denying our own selves, so that we can see the truth in each other and all of us. And back to vaginas. Today I'll be interviewing my friend, Dr. Heidi Olander, who is an OBGYN doctor with Kaiser Permanente San Jose and in Santa Cruz. She is an amazing and thoughtful physician, and she is a firm believer in patient education. Literally, you can ask her anything. I personally know that she is a physician who truly values her connection with her patients, and I'm not sure if without her, if I would have fully embraced the power of my own vagina. She is my friend who taught me about bitch balls, and sometimes you need that reminder to keep walking the path that is right for you. Welcome back to the show, Heidi. I've missed you. I've missed you too, Michelle. <laughs> Thank you. So Heidi, how do you think women are doing with their libido? Mm. Well, if my practice is any indication, uh, I think it is um, paying a price for uh, during the pandemic, honestly. I think people are struggling a little bit. What percentage of women do you think initiate sex? Well, um, it's not something I ask on a regular basis, but from the literature, I know that only 15% of women initiate sex. 
so um, not very often, evidently. So why do you think that is? Um, well, I would have said that it was a cultural thing because I, I think um, there's still a lot of taboos about libido and and um, desire for women. But it seems like the more I read about it, that it might just be a biologic kind of thing. I'm not really sure where it comes from. but And I think right now there's so much stress. Yes. You know, in the state of our world and even in our own, even in our own lives, you know, our children being home much more. Yeah, I think certainly there are a lot of stressors and I think people really underestimate um, the effect that stress has on their sex lives. Really, yeah. You know, um, I know we're both reading Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski and I loved how in her book she really emphasizes you are normal, yes. like multiple times throughout the book. And I think that's, you know, it's just kind of indicative how we all don't feel like we, we may be normal sexually or how we look. Well, I think our society makes us feel like we're not normal, it's, especially in the U.S. I feel like our culture is so sexualized and yet it's so taboo. We're really messed up about sex, I think. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, she was, like, saying how in her book how she's been, you know, through for her work, because she's a, a sexual educator, she would look up pictures of vaginas, like, all over the internet. And she was saying how the pictures of vaginas that are available are usually that of, like, thin, white, young women when, you know, when that's not really everybody. Or how even in porn she was saying how the way a, a woman's genitalia looks is, like, modified that it's edited to look a certain standard when that's not the standard. As someone who looks at a lot of vaginas every day, <laughs> I have to say, they're not very realistically represented in, like, magazines or, um, you know, it's not that you see a lot of pictures of vaginas <laughs> over around, but the the few times that you do, it's it's not typical of what a normal vagina, especially... Um, aging vaginas, like it, it, it's there's this implication that vulvas look the same throughout your lifespan, and that's not true. And um, certainly, there's wide var variation in what they look like, and it's not well represented in our culture. And I think sometimes that's a killer. Like if those are the images that are out there, and that they're not really representative of most of the population, and we don't look like that. You know, like it affects how we think of ourselves when maybe we're actually the normal ones and everyone else is thinking is abnormal then, that we're actually normal, like she says multiple times throughout her book, you are normal. I think our young people are especially vulnerable to that because I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, it would never really occur to me to think about what my vulva looked like. Um, and maybe I was just really sheltered, which I definitely was. But um, but I think now it's just kind of in your face a little bit more. And so people compare themselves um, to what they see and they find themselves lacking. And, you know, it just never would have occurred to me when I was young, you know, yeah. in my early 20s to think like that. Well, I actually didn't think about it until like I gained weight. I gained a lot of weight after pregnancy and I realized my vulva doesn't look like pre-pregnancy. You know, like I didn't know weight could go down there until I learned for myself. Yeah. <laughs> pregnancy changes just about everything. Yeah. And it that. makes you feel badly sometimes, you know, or it makes you feel bad. Yeah. Because it's kind of like, you know, how she talks about love yourself as you are. And I think that's a really difficult thing to do. I spend a lot of time with my young moms. Um, talking about accepting the new body that they have after pregnancy and childbirth. And I, I do think people don't realize how much of a toll it takes on your body. And for people who are really vulnerable to body image issues, I think pregnancy can do a number on that. Yeah. You know, like one of my husband's um, aunts, would, before she died, always said, I wish in my younger days I had worn shorter skirts. Like she was saying how she had great legs, but she never appreciated it. 
and never wore short, you know, enough short skirts. But I guess, you know, it's to the point where when is it enough? Like, even in my 40s, I still struggle with body image. Like, you know, I know the places in my body where I've gained a lot of weight. But when is it enough where you stop that kind of negative thinking and you just accept yourself? You know, are you going to go through the rest of your life thinking, oh, I could have been that, I could be thinner here, or that's enough, you know, like, just love yourself as you are, as hard as that is. Well, I'll let you know when I find somebody who feels (laughs) that way. (laughs) There aren't too many people who are happy with their bodies. Isn't that the truth? Like, we all struggle with the same thing. Yeah, and it, it defies age. It's not isolated to any one part of our life you know did you have the same experience when you look at pictures of yourself when you're younger and you think why didn't I appreciate the body I had then what I wouldn't give definitely to have that body now and I did and I wasn't happy with it then so I yeah like what a waste like if we looked that good back then and we didn't even appreciate it do we continue that thinking for the rest of our lives or I know. Shouldn't that shouldn't that make us stop and say, "Why don't I just appreciate the body I have now? Why do I have to fight it?" Exactly. Like I feel like maybe things would be so much easier for ourselves if we could just feel better or feel feel like ourselves in our body, or at least accept. Like yeah. you know, maybe maybe it's too big of a goal to love your body or like your body, but maybe to just accept it as it is, right? Exactly. Self-compassion for all parts inside and out, you know? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, Can I ask you, how much do hormones um, affect one's sexual libido and function? You know, I think it might surprise people to know that I don't think in general hormones actually modify libido all that much because I have people in my practice who say that menopause makes their libido go down and that as their hormones decline that they you know they don't have as much interest in sex but I have a lot of people whose sex lives get better after they go through the menopause Um, and I think that's surprising to a lot of people Um, I'm just starting to read a little bit more but it, it just in what I've seen over the years people's hormone levels don't correlate with their libido at all. And um, so it it is interesting to think about. um, I think a lot of people feel like their body chemistry is what drives their libido, but that's not what I see um, in my practice anyway. That may be like we're missing the point, I think. You know, if hormones don't really affect our sexual function or dysfunction, perhaps part of our sexual organ is actually our mind or our brain. Oh, I think our brain is the biggest sexual organ, especially for women. Although I wouldn't be surprised if that were true for men, too. But um, absolutely, I think it's people tend to oversimplify, want to oversimplify things so that they can understand it. And it makes sense on some level to think about it being chemistry or your body chemistry that dictates libido. But especially the female libido, is so complicated. There's so much more to it than simple hormone levels and body chemistry. It's it's um, why it's so fascinating to me, actually. I agree. Like, there could be so many outside factors, you know, contributing to one's libido. Like, if you're at home during the pandemic and you're working from home and you're you have a whole lot of, like, chores to do, you know, like your kids are at home for school... I mean, that's a whole shitload of things to do. And, you know, it's kind of hard to feel like sexual when that's your day to day. Or on the other hand, you're home all day with your partner and you have opportunity to have sex. It's maybe it's more on your mind. You know, I think for some people, the pandemic has been good on their libido because maybe they're not commuting an hour and a half each way. Maybe they're not stressing about getting things done at the office or staying late at the office and they're able to take a break during the day. So I that's what I mean. I think it's more complicated. I think different people, some people 
sex is a stress relief. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having a ready partner close by when you're stressed by stuff at home might be add to your sex life. You never know. I guess if you can get there. <laughs> if you can get there. Yeah. And it's a little different when you have kids at home all the time. Because if you think about sex, like it's like a great like elevation of how one can feel, you know, like that that demonstration of that feeling. If you let yourself get there. Exactly. Do you feel like there's a lot of women in your practice who feel like they're not normal? Oh, yeah. I think especially I think there's a lot of guilt around a libido and mm-hmm. there's a perception that they're, uh, if their libido dwindles, which honestly I think happens to a lot of people when they become parents, it's just that their focus changes from being a couple into all the nurturing that kids need. And I think it's a natural time for sex to kind of take a backseat. And there's a lot of guilt that women have about that, whether it's in their own mind or their partners make them feel that way. Um, I think that contributes to a lot of sexual mismatch, you know, when it comes to libido. I can see how, you know, yeah, I can totally see that. Um, How would you feel about what Emily Nagoski was describing um, you know, how there are some people have an, an issue with acceleration versus breaks, that there's like so many stop points to having sex or the sexual desire. I think that is such an such a handy way to think about it, honestly, because it answers a lot of questions for me, because I think the idea of sexual breaks, it it is such a perfect explanation for why women um, can want sex and then find themselves in this opportunity and then it just flies out the window, you know? And the way, before I read Emily's book, um, hopefully she doesn't mean mind me calling her by her first name, but uh, (laughs) um, before I read her book, I I tried to explain to my patients about how, you know, seems like the male libido is so easy. It's just you go from point A to point B so quickly. And I've always been jealous of men about that. But women, it has so much to do with like, have I done all the things on my to-do list? Uh, Oh gosh, I forgot to do the dishes or clean up the kitchen or, um, or finish that task at work. And you just can't bring, I mean, in order to have really good sex, you got to kind of focus on that. You have to be able to tune out all the other things so you can just really focus on your body. And if you have one of those minds that a lot of us have that just run wild with all these random thoughts, um, it actually makes me wonder if people who are practice mindfulness have better sex because <laughs> they can kind of tune out all those, ra- you know, random thoughts better than I can. But, um, but yeah, I think it's really a challenge. And I find that whole idea of breaks and having the wrong context of sex, meaning you're just not in the headspace or maybe not in the physical space that is going to contribute to a really great mind-blowing sexual experience. Um, I found that really helpful. It explained a lot to me. That's a really good question, though. Like, if people who practice mindfulness have better sex. I know. You know? Isn't it? Makes me want to shut practice the crap mindfulness. Out. Yeah. <laughs> I should meditate more. <laughs> do you think, like, context, you know, or one's environment, circum- what, do you think context or one's external circumstances affect women more than men? You know, I don't know. I bet it does. But I also know that it affects men, too. Um, And I never, you know, I feel like it's kind of stereotypical to think that women are the the ones with the low libido and the men's are have a more active libido because that's not always true. I would say there's just as many women who come to me and say that their husband's libido has waned Mm -hmm. and they are struggling with that. So um, 
I think we do a disservice to men when we just assume that they're always ready and that their libido is so easy because I don't think that's true for all men. Um, but the paradigm is such that, you know, it's, to, you know, women complain of low libido through menopause or motherhood or that kind of thing. And of course, I don't see men, so I only see women. But, um, but yes, I think context, because I think context, um, what's the word I want to say? Managing the context of when you have sex has a lot to do with taking out all the things that have put breaks on your sexuality. And um, so if you can control the t context a little bit better, you might be able to control all the breaks that you have on your sex life. And when we talk about context, we're talking about like environmental stresses in your life, things going on. Right? Yes, yes. You know, whether you're on vacation. I mean, I don't know about you, but hotel sex yeah. is better than bedroom sex, right? Um, it because you've taken away the dishes, you've taken away somebody overhearing you that might know you. Um, all those kind of things play into context, yeah. I think. Like wholeheartedly committing to the moment. Yes. Yeah. Letting go of everything else. It's easier yeah. to do if you're not in an environment that triggers all those things that you're usually paying attention to. Yeah, and I think we're like in a very like active world. We're so busy all the time that sometimes it's really hard to shut out some of that crap. Yeah, or just the level of fatigue. True, you know? yeah. One thing I often talk about with my patients is it. I think it's unrealistic to expect that if you work all day, you come home and you do your second shift, um, whether you have kids or not, um, and then you fall into bed exhausted at 10 or 10.30 or 11, and you're expected to have a libido. I mean, it takes energy to have sex, right? Um, and it's different if you know that's coming up and you can save a little energy for it. But I just think it's unrealistic to expect ourselves to work hard all day, you know, cross all those things off our to-do list and then have enough energy left over for sex. And then we feel, as we as women, feel so guilty about it too. Like literally, if there, if you feel like you have nothing left to give, maybe you really have not that much to give. Right, right. And, you know, she brought up such an interesting point in that book too about how the paradigm that we have that women feel like they're holding back or it's something that you need, it's a, a need rather than a want and how that perpetuates the patriarchy and the sense of entitlement that men have over women. Um, I found that really an interesting part of her book and probably some of what plays in our mind when I talk about libido guilt, right? Women feeling like they're depriving they're, and I'm talking about traditional female male partners, but I imagine this can be true in a same-sex relationship too, is, you know, just feeling uh, it, that one, one partner is entitled to sex, you know, and it perpetuates this thing like, what's wrong with me that I don't have that same desire or I can't meet that need for my partner, rather than just recognizing that we all have different levels of need and they're all fine. It's just a matter of finding a way to work with our partner on it. Exactly. That you are normal. Yes. For exactly. feeling however you feel. And I, I totally agree with that way of that thinking. Like so many women feel like we need to fulfill our partners when we're just as important too. And sometimes we need to take our own time to kind of fill up our own energy tank. Right. Or that how about our partners meeting our needs too? Oh. You know, that's not a given in today's society. That's and I don't true. think women are even comfortable asking for what they want or even think that they're entitled to having their partner be responsive to their needs because it's just not a part of our culture right now. That's a beautiful point that you make. Because I think sometimes like women take on that role of like the multitasker when why are we the only ones doing that? Right. Right. And the people I know that have a really healthy sex life are the ones whose partners are really invested in the other person's pleasure. You know? Interesting. That our partners are equally to blame. 
Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> to share that. It's that. not just women's libido, but they're uh, equally culpable. Yes. Or that they could have an influence on it. Yes. I think if there were, if there's one thing I wish I could say to the male partners of my patients is that, you know, if you want to change things, it's within your power to do so. It's not all about her doing the work. You know, Love that. there's a lot that you could do to change that dynamic, too. And certainly I sure I'm sure there's a lot of men that know that and work on that, um, too. But I do think that it's not a part of our societal expectations. And Heidi, I don't think I've ever heard that from my doctor. Like if you're telling your patients that like good for you. You know, I've never heard that from my doctor. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of what I do is female empowerment. And, you know, it's not that I don't love men. I do. I, I love <laughs> my husband. I have two sons. I think men are wonderful. But I do think that women need to hear that they, they deserve to have their needs met, too, and that they should not be shy about sharing what works for them and what doesn't. And it's not a message that we get in American culture. Yeah, because I think sometimes like the message that we get in our in our culture or our country is kind of so more male influenced, like how sex is or, you know, or how, you know, women go through things alone. And I'm sure men go through things alone. But these are issues that women feel that we don't look right, that we don't we're not normal. Yet we all feel this way. Right, right. But it's not talked about. And it's certainly not talked about between men and women. I mean, think of those are conversations you might have with your girlfriends, but do you have it with your partner? Yeah, like I, I'm not going to be like, oh, to my husband, I feel fat in my vagina. <laughs> you know, it's just like that's my own secret head thought. Now it's open now, but you know, <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> but I would like go around our office and I'd be like, I never knew you could gain weight in your vagina, but just wanted to let you know you can. <laughs> That's hilarious. I'm going to have to add that to my uh, pre-delivery talk <laughs> or my preconception counseling. <laughs> Weight goes everywhere. How do you feel about um, medications for erectile dysfunction for women? Does it actually work? Well, you know, they haven't been available uh, for women. I, I mean, you can prescribe them off-label, but I... I you know, I consider myself fairly adventurous and open-minded about libido and trying to find things to help women who are, you know, really concerned about libido. And yet, I, I'm nervous about prescribing them off-label. I'll, I'll prescribe a lot of things off-label because, let's face it, most of these drugs are not studied in women, and that's the way medicine has been for a long time. But you know, these just give me pause. I don't, and there isn't evidence that they work in um, women. In women, yeah. so which doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at that and keep looking for things. But I think it just speaks to the fact that women's libido is not a single entity. There's no one way to fix it, and I spend a lot of time in my practice talking about how nuanced the female libido is and what the different things are that contribute to female libido. Like, for instance, fatigue levels, um, body image, um, the stage of your relationship, the state of your relationship. Um, you know, in my limited experience, men can be mad at you and they'll still have sex with you. But it would be really hard for me to have sex with my husband if I were in a fight with him. You know, um, it's just you have to kind of be in a as a woman, I think it, you're more likely to have better sex if you're in a trusting, safe, emotional space with somebody. So it's a very nuanced, a multifaceted thing. And to just throw a drug at it, I just can't imagine that it's ever going to work. I absolutely agree. And, you know, I know there's, there are some, you know, pharmaceutical companies that support off-label use of certain medications. But Emily Nagoski was also saying, like you, she, you know, she agrees with you in terms of that there is no, no evidence to support its effectiveness in women. And she was talking about how there's a huge placebo effect that women taking sugar pills 
get a certain get an effect, you know, in terms of sexual desire. And it's per- perhaps not the pill, but it's state of your mind, the belief. Yeah, if it weren't immoral, I would totally want to <laughs> use placebo for libido. Sugar pills for everything. <laughs> I know, I would. Because... You know, the placebo effect is 40%. Yeah. So if I could get my patients 40% happier with their libido by giving them, you know, sugar pills, that would be awesome. But because it is, and especially with the female libido, it is all in our our minds. Um, and we that's what we need to change if we want our libido to be better. So, yeah, the placebo effect would be awesome. <laughs> and you... Like we go back to the original point, like how our minds, our brains are a huge sexual organ. And, you know, we talk about that a lot about for women, but I think that's true for men, too. Mm-hmm. I think they have body image issues. I think they have stress levels that are off the charts, too, that affect their health in so many ways. When you think about even stuff like as common as depression and anxiety and what those do to libido, to me... You know, the levels of depression and anxiety are skyrocketing right now, not just from the pandemic. They were from politics. They were from after 9-11. I saw just a generalized jump in anxiety, and that is bad for people's sex lives. Depression and anxiety, both treated and untreated, right? Yeah. And I think that's something that people may not know, that, of course, if you feel like crap or if you feel horrible— it's going to affect your libido. It's like a whole package deal. You know, one is not without the other. It's a team effort. Absolutely. And, you know, I have a a high percentage of perimenopausal and menopausal women in my practice. And um, it, it amazes me how many of them are willing to think that the changes that are happening in their libido are simply due to their hormones. And they're not recognizing all the multitude of changes that are happening in their lives. I don't know, you're younger than me, but there's a certain stage when you start to become invisible in public because you're a middle-aged woman. I'm at that point. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, it's painful, isn't it? <laughs> or maybe beyond that point. I'm yeah. kind of past that point, so it doesn't bother me so much. But I remember, like, just... You felt so invalidated by society at large, and it affects the way you feel about yourself. And so many women's, like, sometimes you start in your career to realize, oh, I'm never going to hit that glass ceiling. I'm not going to get past it. Is this what, you know, we have our own midlife crisis, so to speak. And then our lives are in transition if we're mothers, You know, like for me, you know, midlife coincided with my firstborn leaving for college and my role in his life was really, really different. And, um, you know, now I'm an empty nester. So my my day to day life looks really different. And um, if you're as many of us are so invested in this role of being a mother and that's in transition, we don't give that enough credence. And how it affects our life. And, of course, sex is kind of an integral part of our life. So it's going to affect that, too. So a lot of times I just try to get women to slow down and recognize all the things that are happening in their lives that are affecting them and how that might reflect on their sex life. And if they want it to change, how could they how could they make those changes? I love that. Not about the pills. It's not about the hormones. I think you're absolutely right too. Like the transitions we experience in life, you know, and how we can how we feel about ourselves. But I think like no matter what point we are in our lives, we can the only way we can counter some of those feelings or help support us is to make sure we we try to feel better, you know, to help ourselves to maintain some of that, I don't know, maybe you call it sanity. To feel like you're afloat. The the self-compassion of accepting that this is who we are, what we are, what we look like at this stage of life. And are we going to make the best of it? Are we going to fight it? To be merciful to yourself at all points in your life. Yeah. You deserve it. We're not so good at that, are we? (laughs) Yeah. Or even how, like, the image of the woman or the man changes with age and what you see on, you know, 
uh, on the internet, like there's women who don't age because of surgery, but that may be the abnormal and we're normal, but those are the images that we see. That's right. You know, wrinkles are normal. Like fat may be normal too. (laughs) Yeah. Our bodies change throughout the ages and I worry about our kids and just not being realistic. I wonder if their body expectations are going to be even more, you know, divergent than ours or. Yeah, these unrealistic expectations. And these like images are like everywhere now with the Internet. Yeah. You know, they're more available than just a newspaper. Yeah. And what you say is also really true. I think oftentimes in life we search for like the easy answer. You know, be it hormones, be it in the form of a pill. But oftentimes the answer is very complicated. I think that's true. And I'm always, I feel really gratified when patients are willing to step back with me and look at the bigger picture and let go of this idea that it's just this one thing that we can flip a switch on or we could take a pill for or if only I lost 25 pounds or if only, you know, my um, job were less stressful or, you know, it's 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 rarely that simple. So um, I, I'm always grateful when a patient is willing to step back and look at the whole picture with me. I absolutely agree. Like maybe like... We are all absolutely right. Like how you feel, you may be exactly right. And I think we need to give credence to those emotions that may be affecting all areas of our life, even our like sexual desire and sexuality. And I, you know, the other thing I think about when we talk about this is it is a matter of priority. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way, but I think if you really are struggling with libido issues, and um, you have the typical really busy life that is really crazy all the time, but you want a better sex life, it's like anything else. Then you want to make it a priority and put it higher on your to-do list. And um, I think that's hard. I think. Exactly. I think asking open-ended questions to ourselves is very hard. Like if you ask yourself, you know, why do you think you are having libido problems? What's the answer that comes up immediately before we are like ego comes up with answers we like? But, you know, what's the answer that comes up immediately? Time. Yeah. You already know. Yeah. You know the answer. Right. Right. So I'll often say to somebody who really struggles, well, what is your libido like when you go on vacation? Because that takes a lot of this extraneous stuff that's on our radar off and it's you know, hopefully vacation is a pleasurable experience for us where we can kind of drop back the mundane and the busyness of our regular life and be really looking forward to something enjoyable. And if your sex life is better when you're in that space, then you you have some idea that, oh, this is a lifestyle kind of choice. And that I could put more of this in my regular life if I were to prioritize some unbusy time or save some energy for this or plan it, put it on my to-do list. People think that that's so unnatural, but it actually is one of the keys to getting building back a libido if you put, start thinking about it some more. And addressing the situation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Being honest. And then addressing. And if you're lucky enough to have a partner that wants to work on it with you to talk more about and make it a topic of conversation, which that in itself can enhance libido. Don't you think if one partner is experiencing it, the other partner may also be experiencing a similar situation? Do you wonder? I I do think that. We, if we're in a committed relationship where sex is mismatched, then of course it's going to go affect the other person. You know, I, I, I think it's a pretty important part of a relationship for most people. There's certain people that you know, if you're not, if you, if it's not important to you, and you're lucky enough to be in a relationship where it's not important to the other person, then there isn't a problem. That's then you're normal. 
and you've luckily found a partner that that's their normal too. It's only a problem when it's a mismatch, and in which case, then it can be kind of integral to finding a solution with your partner. Heidi, I find you such an amazing and stellar doctor. Do you feel like you have time to talk to your patients about these really important issues? I feel like a couple minutes is not enough to really show a patient that she's normal, you know, and that these experiences are legitimate. Is there enough time? There is never enough time (laughs) to talk about all the things that are important. But I think if you have a relationship with a woman as your patient, that if you spend enough time just in that, you know, maybe a little hit there and a little hit the next time you talk to her or you set up an appointment to to just devote to this subject a little bit down the line, I think you can get a lot done in just a regular appointment. You certainly can't get into the nitty gritty. And as a, you know, general OBGYN, that's not really my role. My role is just to get people to the resources that they need and introduce ideas maybe they haven't thought of um, and and to validate the fact that they're normal, right? To plant that it's the okay. seed that they are normal. It's yeah. okay. They're not alone in this, that a lot of people are struggling with this mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe to direct them to good resources, whether it's a sex therapist, maybe it's a good book like Come mm-hmm. As You Are. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get people to what they need, but it sure would be nice to have more time to talk yeah. about it. Because I think with important issues like this, you know, important issues like this require, you know, more time and a better answer than the and simplicity of a pill. Trust. Yes. Right? A lot of trust. That's, um, you know, you have to work at that too. What are common questions that you get um, as a GYN doctor with libido and sexuality? I would say the most common question I get is, can we check my hormones because my libido has gone away? That, and that is never going to be a quick conversation. Um, I also get a lot of questions about the menopause and whether it's, is this normal? And it's so reassuring to be able to say, yep. It's normal, and it's certainly your normal. So, you know, and then to try to dive into if that's causing them problems. Is it causing them distress? How do you feel about postmenopausal hormonal therapy? You know, I think I'm not one of these really dogmatic people. I think it's part of the art of medicine. And um, I think there is a role for hormone replacement therapy in women. It's Probably not as much as most people think, um, because I think people have this mistaken belief that if you just go on HRT, that your libido is magically going to get better, and that that doesn't happen. But there are a significant number of women who have pain with intercourse after menopause, and for them, hormones can save their sex life. Um, And there are certain people who— Hormones in the form of a cream? It could be a cream, it could be a ring, it could be a patch, it could be mm-hmm. a pill. Um, you know, it's very, it's one of the things that is very, you have to tailor it to the person and mm-hmm. you always want to do the lowest dose that controls their symptoms. I feel like I was kind of betrayed by my textbooks when I was learning about menopause. And now that I've gone through menopause myself and I have 30 years of listening to women going through menopause, I feel like My textbooks made it sound like it was an event that you went through. And now I understand that it's just one really long transition. I don't know about you, but I started noticing changes in my body in my late 30s. And it was just an evolution. It wasn't, there was never an event. It just, things change, right? And I am really surprised by the role of sleep. Menopause really puts a... your sleep into disarray for a lot of women. Mm-hmm. And that affects everything. That affects your cognition. It affects your mood. It affects um, your libido. Your libido. And so, you know, I have women who have horrible night sweats and cannot get a good night's sleep. Well, that's going to affect everything. 
And if nothing works but hormones to get her a good night's sleep, I'm going to give her hormones Mm because life is about quality of life. And um, as long as she understands that there are risks associated with taking hormones, you know, she needs to have that ultimate decision about whether to take hormones or not. And I try to be as open and honest about it as I can. And I try to give them every other option other than taking hormones because of the risks associated with hormone use. Um, But if she really tries the supplements and maybe acupuncture and, you know, some of some of the other things like, you know, some people who are on antidepressants, I can modify those to maybe deal with hot flashes. But if she's tried all that and she still can't sleep or she has raging hot flashes that don't respond to everything else, I have no problem writing a prescription for hormone replacement therapy. I do encourage them to try the alternatives first, but, you know, for certain situations, we got to sleep. We got to, if our vaginas are dry and they didn't, they're, we can't have enjoyable sex because everything's so dry, then to me, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Like, when we learn about menopause, like, even as medical students, like, or even as doctors, you know, it sounds like it's like, kind of like a quick event, like a year. Yeah. But it's never a year. It it's could last for many years. I have 70 and 80-year-olds who still have hot flashes. And their cardiologists go crazy when I put them on hormone replacement, but they love me for it because they feel so much better. But definitely that it's a phase. Yeah. Yeah. That we will all go through. Phase. (laughs) What are common questions that you get from your younger patients? Um, A lot of them are like, is it normal to feel this way? I find there is a lot of um, uh, overthinking about vaginal discharge. Some women, young women, are really obsessed with their vaginal discharge. So, again, it's a matter of taking time to explain to them what a normal vaginal discharge will do throughout their cycle. You know, and during a normal cycle, you'll have your period. You'll have a week of very little to no discharge. Then you'll have maybe a week of this kind of mucousy, egg whitey discharge that indicates that you're ovulating. And then you'll have a week of this kind of thick white discharge that smells like you, but maybe even stronger than normal. And then you have your period again. And sometimes when I walk through that with my younger patients, they're like, wow, oh, so maybe this discharge that I thought was abnormal is just normal. So I feel like um, a lot of it is just around education about what's normal and trying to, the other thing is they'll say, oh, my boyfriend says I smell weird down there. And so I'll do my exam and I'll do my wet mount and it looks like and smells like a normal discharge to me. And they'll say, well, what, why is it bothering my boyfriend? And I'll say, well, I don't know, but you can, you know, I've probably, uh, paid attention to discharge more than your boyfriend has, hopefully. And I'm telling you that this is normal discharge. Or the number of times, like, women smell stuff from their boyfriend and we don't say it. Right, right. Freaking A, the boyfriend said it. (laughs) I know, I know. I feel like I wish I could say, and I I sometimes do say, wow, it sounds like you might need a new boyfriend. (laughs) I know, it's so, like... Because uh, you got to tell them this is normal discharge. So, but women are really concerned about what they smell like, what they look like, and so we spend a lot of time on education about what's normal and what to expect. Why do you think women aren't open with discussion to other women about it? Like, wouldn't it help if we talk to our friends about it? And I didn't when I was younger, and I don't know why. Maybe I was so uncomfortable. Well, I think there's a lot of misinformation that goes mm-hmm. between. People too, because it's just I, maybe it's kind of this loss. And in, in the olden days, you know, you you live in groups of women. You'd be delivered by a midwife. You you know, things would be passed down from a mother to her daughter or grandmother or something like that. But I don't think we have those discussions about you know about it anymore. It's just kind of buttoned up and taboo. It's true, like, not to be too much of a hippie on, about this, but maybe we have too much clothes on, <laughs> you know? 
Maybe so. Like back in the day, if you're all your women folk were around you having your baby, you know, that's so supportive. And it didn't matter what your vagina looked like as you're giving birth. Like no one cares. Nobody you know, People cared. care about the baby coming out and the fact that you, you survived. Right. Or how about miscarriage? Yeah. Nobody talks about miscarriage. And it's so common. And yet, if you talk to most women who've had a family, many, many of them have had miscarriages. It's really, really common. I mean, the rate of miscarriage is about, if you're 18, it's about one in five pregnancies. If you're 33, it's about one in three. If If you're 40, it's one in two. It's really, really common. And yet... No one talks about it. They think there's something wrong with them when they have a miscarriage. There's so many. We suffer alone when yes. it's so common. Yes. And it's all just about knowledge, just about sharing knowledge about it. And I think that's an issue where women feel ashamed about it, and they shouldn't. You know, when I was, um, when I had my son, you know, there's people advocate breastfeeding breastfeeding so much, you know, but I really couldn't produce any milk. I just had such a hard hard time. And I had survived like medical training, you know, like medical school. And I was like, but this one ripped me to the core. Actually, I felt like such a failure for not being able to produce milk. It's such like, a primal Society's thing. expectations from a mother. I thought that you know, I was supposed to be able to produce milk, but I couldn't. And that two, my son being two weeks, I felt like such a failure. Yes. And unfortunately, that's so common. I I try to prime women to um, understand that breastfeeding doesn't come naturally. It's a learned skill, and it takes a lot of patience. And for me, it took so much stubbornness to stick with it. You know, it it was not easy for me with any of my three kids. And um, I I think that we I think it's great that we, the pendulum has swung and that breastfeeding is celebrated. But I never want to make women feel like they're less than if breastfeeding doesn't come natural to them. To them. And I also want to tell them, you need, you are the mom. You are the queen bee of this family unit. And you get to decide what's the best for your family. And sometimes that is bottle feeding. And that is perfectly fine. Yeah, I wish someone had told me exactly what you're saying. That no matter what you choose as a woman or mom, it's the right answer, no matter what you choose. You know, that was a decision that you had to make, and that's still the answer. And I mean, for me, like, I felt guilty about it, and I was primarily formula-fed. I'm mostly okay. Me too. <laughs> me too. Hey, we were formula-fed. that turned out okay. Yeah, we came out okay. Exactly. It's like we, find, we can find so many things to make ourselves crazy. Well, about what is the definition of normal? And it's, again, an oversimplification. People trying to reduce it to this binary thing, breastfed or not, right? When it's so much more than that, if you have problems with milk supply, if you feel guilt every time you can't get that baby latched on so you use the pump instead, that is not good for your psyche. It's not good for your family unit because you're wasting a lot of energy there. Let it go. Bottle feed that baby and do the go play with your kid instead. You yeah. know, there's a lot of ways to bond to a kid. So. Your sanity as a mom counts. Absolutely. Absolutely. You need to prioritize that because there's so many ways to to lose your sanity when you're especially when you're a new mom. It's so overwhelming. Yeah. Don't you think there's so much support for like the pregnant woman? Like people like move seats so that pregnant women could sit down on the bus or something. But once you have the baby, you're like kind of like lost to society. Not only that, you're invisible because everybody gloms onto the baby, which you do too. You know, it's all about that. But yeah, I had this fantasy when I was an OBGYN resident that there would be like halfway houses that we could discharge patients to where they'd have grandmas who'd rock their babies while they took a nap and helped them with breastfeeding and did the dishes and the laundry and cooked for them so that they could just recover from their birth and get to know their babies and you know and it just doesn't happen. You get you leave the hospital two days later, you're totally unsure of how to breastfeed and whether you're doing it right. 
And, uh, you know, even those of us who are lucky enough to have family support, it's not the same. I just think it would be so lovely to have these little postpartum halfway houses. It's true. And I think that's kind of like how our culture has changed. You know, in certain countries, you have like the women folk around you helping you. But here you're really like all alone. Your first night with the baby is all alone. And and that doesn't even, I mean, in an ideal world, you'll get to choose who nurtured you because yeah. we can't assume that it's our mothers or mother-in-laws or sisters, whatever. Maybe it's a great friend. Maybe it's, you know, who knows, but somebody that nurtures you. My husband gets so annoyed at this, but I seriously tell every pregnant lady just so that they're prepared, you know, I wish someone had told me this, but like, I've never cried so much in my life until I had my the first few Same. months of my baby. Same. Oh, my God. And I'm not a crier. <laughs> and I bawled my eyes out. And it took me to my third kid, my postpartum day three or four. I just cry all day long. I don't even know what I'm crying about. Must be something to do with just the hormone crash or I don't know what it is. But by my third kid, I told everybody <laughs> out of the house. <laughs> I'm just going to stay home with the baby. You guys leave, go to the park, go somewhere else. I'm just going to cry all day. And I did. And I felt better after I did it. But yeah, me too. And I am not a crier. Or like you feel like tired for like a whole year or more. Or more. Yeah. I think I spent a decade just exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> like my husband and I used to never fight until we had children. Yeah. You know, there is a lot of stress, like, after having had a baby, feeling so tired. I remember on our, on our first date, we went to a bar, and I've never cussed at him so much, and he at me. The whole time, we were just cussing at each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, parenting definitely brings out the differences in, couple, in pe individuals. That's for dang sure. I think parenting has been the biggest stressor for me, us too. Well, Heidi, thank you so much. This was like a really interesting conversation about women's libido and women's issues. And remember, folks, you are normal. <laughs> Good reminder, Michelle. Thanks. Thank you. We are honored that you are continuing to listen to this podcast. Please consider subscribing, tell your friends, and write us a great review. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. <laughs>